right, good morning, good morning. Man, I, one person said good morning to me. Thanks, Jared. I know you're with me. Well, good morning, church. Hopefully you guys are not asleep from the gloomy weather that is outside. Surely not. Well, a couple of people are awake. Uh, but yeah, so uh, definitely happy to be here. Uh, happy to be able to talk uh, just about this plague. Uh, but I'll get to that just in a second. Um, last week, has anyone ever scratched their cornea? No. No. Well, a couple of people, a couple of people. I will tell you, it is probably the top three worst pain I've ever felt in my life. Tell you about it. So I woke up last Thursday morning, and I get up about 7 a.m. every day, solid time. I get up at 6 a.m., my eye is just throbbing with pain. And I had slept in my contacts the night before, so a little foreshadowing for what is about to occur. I, uh, I wake up and I'm like, ah, oh, geez, allergies, here we go, pollen season is here. So I take my contacts out, I put them in the solution, and I go back to bed for a couple minutes, hoping that maybe sleeping off the pain will help it, right? No big deal. I wake up again, throbbing pain. I'm just sitting there. There are tears flowing out of my eyes. I'm like twitching in bed. I'm like, I cannot move. Why is my eye hurting so much? And then it dawned on me. I'm like, oh no, my roommate did this like a year ago. I think I, I think I scratched my eye somehow, some way. So I call a doc. I have to wait two hours to get on the phone with a doctor in order to get in because of COVID. And so I'm sitting on the sofa, and, you know, some of the roommates are home. They're coming in and out. Some people are coming over. And they just see me on the sofa. I'm, like, crying, practically. And they're like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. I think I scratched my cornea. And they're like, really? How'd you do that? And I'm like, don't know. Couldn't tell you. Don't even know what's going on. And I'm like, maybe I just have allergies. And I think one of the brothers, he looked into my eye. He just stared at me. He's like, nah, bro. That's not allergies. I'm, like, crying here looking at you. I'm like, yep, okay. So deal with that. Go to the eye doctor. I, I get it looked at, and sure enough, I had a scratch right over my pupil. And it was slightly infected. And they said, you got to go on antibiotics. No more contacts for two weeks. And I asked them, how did this happen? And they said, well, did you sleep in your contacts? And I was like, yeah. They're like, do you do that often? I'm like, yeah. They said, well, you probably shouldn't do that. And they ran through all the list of the health concerns that are going on with that. And they kind of scared me a little bit there. But pretty much what I learned from that time is it was my own fault I scratched my cornea. <laughs> my own dang fault. And so I am now no longer able to wear contacts for the next week. So hence the glasses. It's not just to make me look smarter, though that is also a, a pro to that. But... It was my own fault that I scratched my own cornea. Something so small as sleeping in my contacts could cause me so much pain to where I am just crying and acting, geez, like a little kid who just got like a little scratch. Like I am twitching and tinging about it. However, today I'm not going to be talking about, I'm going to be talking about something a little similar to that. Not scratching our cornea. I'm not here to ramble about that for hours. But there's something small that I think that our world today has let slip more and more, and it's kind of created a problem for our own selves, where metaphorically we've slept on something and now allowed it to cause us pain. It is a plague of our own making, hence the title of today's sermon. 
Let me tell you a little bit about this plague. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm not here to talk about uh, if COVID was made in a factory or some sort of uh, government conspiracy. I'm not here to talk about that. But I will tell you about some of the symptoms, and we'll see if we can guess if that is it or not. Here's some of the symptoms. An immense disdain towards a fellow human being. An unwillingness to let go of past hurts. Allowing bitterness to fester in one's heart. A lack of compassion and understanding. Judgment, jumping to conclusions, disunity, hatred, discord, and writing somebody off. Does that sound familiar to any of you guys? Maybe something you've experienced, maybe something you're going through right now in your life. If you can't tell what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about some sort of disease. I'm talking about unforgiveness. That is the plague I'm talking about here, that we have allowed ourselves to sleep on it, and now it's taken our world captive in a plague unlike anything we've ever seen. It's been around way before COVID, since the dawn of humankind, and we have allowed it to fester. And I think that our world today is dealing with it now more than ever. I mean, this past year, maybe two years, have really shown it. I mean, just look on social media, look on the news, look on the media, talk to the people around you. It's everywhere. Most people are infected with it in some way or some shape or form. But let me tell you, there's good news about this, amen? Because there is a cure. And this is the cure. This is the main point of the sermon, so if you fall asleep for the rest of the message, amen, I don't blame you, but just write this down. Accepting and extending God's grace is the cure to the plague of unforgiveness. Can we get an amen to that? Because that's an amazing thing that, yes, unforgiveness exists. Yes, bitterness exists. Yes, people are going to hurt one another. But there is a cure. There is an amazing cure. And it's only through Jesus. So we're going to go ahead and jump into that. So turn your Bibles over to Matthew 18. We're going to be reading some of Jesus' words today. So as you're turning there, a little context about this. I was uh, reading Matthew uh, a few months ago, um, and I was listening to a podcast along with it, and I realized just how much Matthew is really writing in a lens that is really trying to show how Jesus taught his disciples how to love the people that people didn't want to love, that people didn't want to accept. And Jesus is so good about pushing the boundaries that were against social norms of the time. You know, and in Matthew 18, he starts getting into some of the disciples' pride and their unwillingness to forgive one another, their bitterness, their arrogance, and he's discipling this, and he gets over and over. And finally, when we get over to where we're going to pick up in verse 21, Peter is kind of hearing all these messages, and kind of my assumption there is, when you kind of get, like, corrected a lot, you kind of want to figure out a way to, like, justify yourself a little bit, right? You kind of want to, like, all right, so what does this all mean? So in verse 21, Peter asks this. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. 
So again, remember, Peter's just heard all these lessons about forgiveness and accepting people and trying to mend wounds between people that have hurt you. And now Peter's like, well, Jesus, like, how often should I forgive somebody, right? He's kind of feeling a little convicted, but he's also kind of making a little bit of a, kind of trying to make a little slight in some ways. See, the Jewish standard during the time, the rabbis, they would teach that you only needed to forgive your brother or sister three times. Three times, that was it. On the third time, you could say, let God deal with that person. That's it. I don't need to forgive you anymore. And so Peter, coming up to Jesus, he's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to one-up this. I'm going to show how really spiritual I am about this. Hey, Jesus, how much should I forgive my brother or sister? Not, not three times, but how about seven times, a.k.a. the number of completeness. Peter's probably smirking there. He's waiting for Jesus like, good job. Yes, you got it. You understand. But that's not what Jesus said. <laughs> Peter, I mean, Jesus is probably like, okay, he still doesn't get it. So he tells Peter, he's like, it's not seven times, but 77 times. Now, scholars have debated whether this means 144 or 77 or infinite, but I actually found something a little deeper that was really, really powerful. You don't have to turn there, but on your own time, there's a, there's a reference that Jesus is making to the Old Testament by saying 77 times. It actually comes from a story in Genesis chapter 4 with a guy by the name of Lamech. Now, that's kind of a weird reference to make. Not many of us have our quiet times on Lamech, but I'll give you kind of the cliff notes of it. Lamech was not a good dude. Lamech was the guy who started polygamy, the guy who started slavery in the Bible. Like, he is just not a good dude. And he made this wild statement. He said, anyone who wrongs me or my descendants of Cain, I will avenge them up to 77 times. This is the only other reference where that number 77 comes in the Bible. Jesus is not just giving Peter kind of a limit of, hey, here's the limit of where you need to forgive. Just forgive someone 77 times, then you can write them off and you can move on. Now, Jesus is actually alluding to the fact that you have to out-forgive evil itself. That's the deepness of what Jesus is actually claiming there. Forgiveness is infinite. Evil is always going to be there. Sin is always going to happen. People are always going to wrong you. But that doesn't matter. You still need to forgive and actually out-forgive evil itself. And so Jesus makes this firm statement here, but he doesn't just stop there. He continues with a parable. But we'll look in there in a second. But when I was reading this, I was thinking about even myself. I'm like, man, can't I be like Peter? Hearing all these teachings on forgiveness, like, I get it, Jesus, I get it. Forgiveness is a good thing, right? We've heard tons and tons of lessons on forgiveness. You have to forgive your brother and sister. You have to do this. And we know the commands in the Bible that tell us that we must forgive. But I think that sometimes we look for a way to put a limit on our forgiveness. How many times can I forgive this person and then I'm okay to not do it anymore? How many times can I stop forgiving? Or even, is there something I just will not forgive? A certain sin or a practice? You know, I, I think about it because I think that 
more times than not, we seek to get justice for ourselves rather than to forgive things that make no sense to forgive. And I think we live in a world where this is such an occurrence that we just end with a cycle of unforgiveness and violence that can never be broken. You know, I think about even myself, like when, when either myself or my friends have been wronged, I'm quick to jump on trying to get vengeance or to make myself right or to vindicate myself, right? I think we do that all the time. When someone says a snarky comment to me, I'm the first one to shoot something back real quick, right? I got to be the most intellectual. I got to be the most snarky. I have to have a good quit for everything, right? I think about like those things. Or I think about when I've been disrespected. Ooh, that's a big one for me. Anytime I feel disrespected, I'm like, all right, I'm going to put this person in their place. I'm going to do that. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. Or when someone else has wronged me or someone I love and they don't repent. What about that? What about you go to that brother or sister, they, they continuously sin against you, and you're like, bro, sis, look, can you please stop doing it? This hurts me in this way. And they don't change. What do I do with that? It's very easy to go, well, they didn't repent, so may God be their judge. And I write them off. Notice Jesus here didn't say, well, if they do X, Y, Z, then you're fine. This doesn't apply. Remember, Jesus says we have to out-forgive evil itself which means there are no conditions on unforgiveness. This is an unconditional command by Jesus that we must do. You guys with me? All right, let's pick up with this parable here because I think that Jesus takes it really deeper into really understanding why we need to forgive and really kind of what this looks like for us and how it plays out in our lives. This parable is so powerful. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Verse 23. Therefore... He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. You know, Jesus here starts with this parable. He's talking about, he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, anytime he starts with a parable like that, I think our first notion is to go, well, heaven will be like that one day, right? But when he starts by saying the kingdom, he's talking about the people here on earth what his kingdom on earth is supposed to look like. Not just a reality far, far away that we kind of hope for and aspire to, but something that's also for here and now. So he starts off by saying that, and he's like, all right, so there's this guy, right? And there's a king, he's here to try to collect his debts, and there's a guy that he lent a lot of money to. And so he comes in and he says, I can't pay it. It says that he owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Now, I'm not a math major, but I tried to crunch some numbers to figure out how much it was. I might be wrong on my math here, but what I did find is most scholars say that the amount that's there was about three lifetimes worth of wages. 
three lifetimes worth. And I know a lot of us have great jobs and great places, but imagine for your entire lifetime, you owed a debt that was going to take you three of those to pay back. What a student loan. <laughs> Amen. I'm just saying. But that's what this guy owed. So this king brings him in, and the guy is like, look, be patient with me, and I will pay that back. Now, how many of you guys, if you're that king, do you really believe that this guy has the ability to pay that back? No, no this is three lifetimes worth of money. How on earth is he going to get that much money? And second of all, who, who in their right mind would lend him that much money anyways? I'm still trying to figure that out. Like, wow, what did he spend it on? Like, man, I, I'd like to know. But the point is, this guy could not pay back the debt. And the king very well knew that. So he was prepared to throw him in jail, to sell everything he had just to try to make something back. But the guy begged and pleaded, and he says, I'll pay it back if I can. The king knows he's not going to get the money back. But it says he took pity on it and canceled the debt. He didn't require him to pay back the money anymore. Three lifetimes worth of money. And he said, I don't need it anymore. Go in peace. Go in peace. Automatically, the way this parable already starts off, I think we can start seeing how this automatically applies to our life and the person we are in this story, right? You know, think about Romans 6.23 where it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very familiar verse and we all know it. We're that servant in the story here. We have three lifetimes worth of debt we cannot pay. There's no way we can pay it back. It's not going to take a good deed that's going to pay it back. I think sometimes we fall into the cycle of, all right, I sinned today, so you know what? I'm going to make it up by going and doing a couple good deeds today, right? I'm going to outweigh the bad I just did. But that's not how it works. We can't pay it back. There's absolutely nothing we can do to pay back three lifetimes worth of debt. God knows it, but he still chose to go, go in peace. Your debt is forgiven. Your debt is canceled. And we know what that cost God. It wasn't free. I mean, the king in the story now had to eat a three or a 10,000 bags of gold loss on that. I'm sorry, but I think that king is going out of business on that case. But we know what it cost Jesus for us. I mean, Lily talked about it. We reflect on it every single Sunday. It caused the mocking. It caused the torture, the persecution, all of that, so we can have a debt forgiven. And that is the context that Jesus automatically starts this parable with, is that we have been forgiven of a lot. We had a debt we could not pay. God himself decided to end the cycle of unforgiveness by forgiving us. That is the first thing that's there. But what's interesting is we read the story and we're like, yes, great story. End the story there. Put a period. Awesome. I love that. And we kind of think that, you know, maybe there'll be like a, a part two to it where the guy is going and doing awesome and great things. But as some of you know how this story continues, that's not how this story goes. The story ends in such an odd way. But I think we relate a lot to it. Verse 28, it says, 
But when the servant went out, he found one of his, se- his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. Sounds very familiar. But he refused. Instead, he went off, had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Sounds very, very familiar, but ended in a totally different way. Ten silver, sorry, a hundred silver coins was about three months worth of wages in that day and age. It's not, it's not like nothing. I mean, that's, that's still a decent chunk of money. But when you think about how much this servant was just forgiven of, don't you think he would have looked at that a little bit different? Don't you think he would have looked at it just a little bit different? The other servant, the guy who owed him money, had the same posture, same everything. He said, be patient with me, I'll pay it back, which this he probably could pay back. But the man could not forgive. He did not forgive. Instead, he chose to choke him and throw him into jail. He chose violence instead of redemption. He chose judgment instead of forgiveness. He went right to misusing God's grace and bringing in God's judgment instead. And as I read this story, I'm convicted because I think that I fall into the story many times. And I know I'm not alone when I read this story. I think we all fall into this story. Where too often than not, we, we come to church, we reflect on the cross, we think about the grace we've been shown, but then when we go home, we go and bring God's judgment instead of God's grace with us. And this is the story of today's world. We turn around and we choke our fellow brother and sister, demanding that they pay back everything they owe us, demanding that they make the wrongs right that they've done to us. And we judge them for it. We choose not to forgive. We choose to vindicate ourselves and choose to judge. And that is our definition of justice today, is we want to be made right in those ways instead of choosing forgiveness. This is the plague and how it has taken hold of our world. You see how it infects? It's so, so small. Very, very small, and we don't detect it. But man does it destroy. Man does it destroy there. Verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. It's a scary passage because Jesus is making it clear that, again, forgiveness is not an option. You must give it to your fellow brother and sister. You must give it to your fellow human. You do not have the right 
to not forgive. You must forgive. And so this guy, three months worth of wages again is not nothing. And we can think about that in our life. There are times we have people who hurt us in serious ways, who hurt us where we can make every excuse in the book. They've done X, Y, Z to me. They've done this unforgivable thing. They continuously hurt me. They don't repent. But Jesus doesn't make a condition there. He says, you must forgive your brother and sister from your heart. And so the man in the parable here was thrown into jail until he could pay back all that he owed. It's interesting, I, I, when I was doing some research on this and I was listening to a, parable, or a podcast on this, the, uh, the podcaster, he made a really interesting point that I've never heard before. The Greek in that statement there that says, until he should pay back all that he owed is a little ambiguous. And the statement there is a little ambiguous. Not in terms of that he owed something, but to who he owed something. It was interesting because when I read this passage, I usually think, well, shoot, if I don't forgive, then I got to pay back all the sins that I committed to God, right? I think we read that sometimes, but it's interesting because what the podcaster is making a point is that actually, the Greek actually alludes to what he owed to the other servant. Not in terms of the three months of wages or the 10,000 bags of gold, but something he owed him for this entire story, forgiveness. It's interesting because what the parable here is making a point of, I heard it best said this way, this man was thrown in a prison of his own making and given the key to his cell, but he wasn't using it. I'll say that again. He was thrown into a prison of his own making with the key, but he wasn't using it. The key was forgiveness. It it almost sounds like the moment he chose to forgive this man was the moment his sins would have been forgiven again and let out of prison. Because ultimately, God knows he's not going to get anything back from us. But he wants us to learn to forgive one another. I think that we here have a tough time because some of us here today are stuck in that prison, are stuck in the plague. We have the cure in our hand, but we choose not to use it. We know what we've been forgiven of. We accept God's grace. I made this statement here. It says, the cure to the plague is to take the grace we've been given and extend it to others regardless of the circumstances. Because I think that we, we love accepting God's grace. We're like, thank you, God. I love accepting it but we have a hard time giving it. We're pretty selfish with it. I know I am. I love just holding on to it, not giving it to people. Man, oh man, when someone wrongs me, I'm the first one to correct them. But I'm not the first one to restore them often than not. I'm not the first one to come and offer them grace. And this has been a passage that has convicted me over and over and over again. Is that the point is not to judge, but to offer restoration. Of course, that means we correct our brother and sister when they've messed up, but we don't just leave them there. We restore them. We bring them back into the light. We don't just leave them in the dark, in the gloom, in the doom. So here's just a couple of reflections on this. As people of God, we should be quick to extend grace to others because of the grace that was shown to us. So think about it. In your relationships with maybe your spouses or your significant others, How do they feel towards you? 
would they say you're a person who extends more grace or more judgment? What about our roommates, our kids, our parents? Do they feel God's grace from us? Or do they feel God's wrath from us? Our fellow brothers and sisters, we think about it. Or even, what, it, what are we posting on social media? Do people see God's grace in our language? Or do they see God's wrath? When we're out on campus or we're out at work, do people at work know that we are walking with grace or waiting to judge them when they slip up? What are we walking with? And when someone wrongs us, are we quick to forgive or do we sit on it? And do we let it fester in our heart? And then when we see that brother and sister at church or at home or wherever, we have those thoughts in our mind where that person? <laughs> okay. We laugh, but often than not, we do it, though. We let the bitterness fester. We let the plague take hold. We let it kill us slowly until there's nothing left. Remember, as people of God, we're called to out-forgive evil in the world, not just come up with some little standard of here's how many times you should forgive. Because verse 35, remember it says, you must forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Does not matter how many times they sin against you. And I'll even make this point too. Our forgiveness of somebody else does not require their repentance. It does not require them changing their actions. You still must forgive them, even if they continue to sin against you their entire life. That's the standard that Jesus is requiring here. And that's hard. That is really, really hard. But I think about it for us. How many times has God forgiven you of that sin and you still go back and do it? How many times do you still turn back, as the scriptures say, to the vomit and God still forgives you and picks you up? Forgiveness of your heart is still required. So my brothers and sisters, let me ask you, did you catch the plague? I'm not talking about coronavirus. I'm talking about the plague of unforgiveness. Are you sitting here today with bitterness in your heart towards somebody? Go talk to them. Go have a conversation with them and forgive them. Are you hypercritical of somebody right now? Anytime they, they talk to you, anytime that they do something, are you the first one to come up with something ruthless against them? Then maybe you need to go have a conversation with them. Maybe you have some bitterness in your heart. Are you described as someone who shows more grace or judgment? Ask the people around you, but be careful of the answer. Be ready for it. Do you see the best in people despite their flaws? Or do you just enjoy pointing out people's flaws? If you have the plague today, then my encouragement is for you to use the cure. Use the cure, which is accepting God's grace, which most of us have. But we don't like to extend it. Extend God's grace where it should be given. Restore the people who need to be restored and forgive where you need to forgive. Don't let the plague destroy your life. Don't wait, because the longer you wait and let it fester, the longer the plague has to take hold of you, destroy your relationship with God, 
your relationship with people around you and alienate you from the rest of the community. That is what's at stake, and that's why it's so important to use the cure as soon as you possibly can. My final question before uh, I end here is, is there a limit to the grace that you give to others? What's your limit? We all got one. Whether it's a sin that is sinned against you, whether it's someone who doesn't repent, whether it's an amount of times, whatever it is, what is your limit? Because that will show you where your heart is and where you need to grow. Love you guys. The singers are going to come up with another song. Use the cure. Amen.